From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. If you look at the approximately 1.2 billion Catholics worldwide, the vast majority are black and brown people in the global South and elsewhere. But the fact that people think Catholicism is a white religion, well, that's a perspective that only comes out of a white context, white North Americans, white Europeans and the rest. The problem is those are the populations that have historically been advantaged by systemic racism and therefore are the ones who set the tone and assume certain things about how the church is and ought to be and so forth. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome Father Daniel P. Haran. He's the director of the Center for Spirituality and Professor of Philosophy, Religious Studies, and Theology at St. Mary's College. He previously served as the Dun Scotus Professor of Spirituality at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. He's a columnist for National Catholic Reporter and is the author of 13 books, including The Franciscan Heart of Thomas Merton and Catholicity and Emerging Personhood, which received a 2020 Excellence in Publishing Award from the Association of Catholic Publishers. Father Haran regularly lectures around the United States and abroad and serves on a number of university, academic, and publication editorial boards, including the St. Bonaventure University Board of Trustees, the Franciscan School of Theology Board of Regents, and the Board of Directors of the International Thomas Merton Society. I should mention that along with me and Executive Editor Heidi Schlumpf from National Catholic Reporter, he is a co-host of the Francis Effect podcast. Today we're talking about his recent book, A White Catholic's Guide to Racism and privilege. Father Daniel P. Haran, welcome to Things Not Seen. David, great to be with you as always. So I'm going to begin our conversation in, in a slightly odd place. Like you, I serve on the board of directors of various religious organizations. And a couple of years ago, right after the focus of attention on George Floyd and other matters, we, we had a situation with a board that I was on where a member of the board suggested that we issue a statement basically affirming that black lives matter. And I was one of a couple of people who are Catholic on that board. And there was another board member who pushed back very strongly, a fellow Catholic, and wanted to say again and again, no, it's not black lives matter. All lives matter. And as I was engaging with this board member, it almost felt like I was dealing with someone who had been catechized into this way of thinking, this notion that somehow if we single out blackness or an African-American identity, we ourselves are being the racist, because this was a comment that was said at one point in that exchange. And so that's where I want to start. When I, as a Catholic, am confronting another Catholic, and we both are throwing slogans at one another, one Black Lives Matter, the other All Lives Matter, help us to begin to unpack that. What is going on in that exchange between two Catholics? Yeah, it's a very common one. So it's it's a great example. It's a complicated one, obviously. But because it's not an infrequent sort of exchange, it's a great way to begin. I try an emphasis on despite what Yoda would say about do or do not, there is no try. Um, I, I can't always do, but I, I practice. And that practice is one of a hermeneutic of generosity. So trying to understand when somebody, for instance, pushes back against the Black Lives Matter movement or the expression with a, quote, all lives matter response, attempting to ground it in the Christian tradition, I, I want to assume goodwill, right? So that's the, the starting point. And what the way that I would begin is thinking about the intention behind somebody who says, well, wait a minute, Black Lives Matter, we're just singling out a particular group based on the color of their skin. Isn't that a kind of racism, which is the second part of your question, right? And uh, isn't it true from the Christian tradition, from Catholicism in particular, that truly all human beings have inherent dignity and value, and then therefore doesn't it, doesn't it ring true that all lives matter? And my response would be, well, it depends in when and where we're identifying this truth. So theologically, all bodies are resurrected in God's eternity. 
But right now in human history, where we are in history, Jesus of Nazareth's body is the only one resurrected. And, and for those of us in the Catholic tradition with the dogma of the assumption of the body of Mary, we'll just leave that to the side for a minute because the distinction between resurrection and assumption is a kind of a weighty theological debate. My point here is not to be flip either about the resurrection of Jesus Christ or of, of what Paul proclaims in the New Testament about the surety of our bodily resurrection someday. The point is we are not at that eschatological end. It's not the fulfillment. It's not the completion of God's kingdom. And indeed, while we believe in our faith tradition that all human beings have inherent dignity and value, historically, we have not lived that way. And so when our sisters and brothers of color and other siblings of color say Black Lives Matter, the point isn't only black lives matter. To the contrary, the point is, indeed, all lives ought to matter, but we don't live in such a way. We don't practice in our society, in our churches, through our laws, in our interactions, in our socialization and education systems, as if, indeed, all lives matter. In fact, time and time again, it's demonstrated without qualification that our country, the United States in particular, and we're not alone. So I'm not just saying that this is an American exceptionalism, that we're the only racist country in the world. That's not true. But that's where I live. That's where you live. That's where many of our listeners are joining us from and where I focus my attention. The truth is we are not there yet. And so that's the first response. The second thing I would say, is it a form of racism? Well, no. Racism is about it's a combination of when prejudice based on race or skin color appearance or some other sort of secondary kind of racialized characteristic is discrimination based on race is married to or combined with power. You can have prejudice, you can have individual bias, you can have personal tastes and irrational dislikes, but that doesn't make it racism. Just like if a woman in the, in the United States context dislikes men and even actively discriminates against men, that isn't sexism in the strict sense. That's just an individual, I would say, probably unfair to make such a generalization, but nevertheless, not the same thing because in the U.S. context, historically and at present, women as a category are excluded from power, are paid less. There's a gap in wage. There's threats, both literal in terms of violence, but also figurative in terms of career op opportunities and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that are disproportionately and overtly oriented toward women and disadvantage them in a way that advantages men as a collective group. So there's no such thing as reverse racism. When we say Black Lives Matter, it's to draw attention to the lack of fulfillment of what it is we say in our own Christian tradition about the inherent dignity and value of all people. There's a lot here that we're going to unpack, but let me just take a moment and reintroduce you if listeners have just joined us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with Father Daniel P. Horan, who is a Franciscan friar and director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College. Today we're talking about his recent book, A White Catholic's Guide to Racism and Privilege. One of the things that you said in that answer that I want to circle back to, and like I said, there's a lot that I want to unpack here, is this notion of doing a generous reading of that response from the person who insisted all lives matter, not black lives matter. And you said something that I, I want to circle back to. You said sometimes we hear black lives matter and to a person who has privilege and who is performing whiteness in that particular moment, it can almost sound, if you're coming from a Catholic standpoint, like that's the racism. Singling out blackness is the problem and naming blackness as something to be protected is the problem when really what we need to be saying is all lives have dignity, all persons have dignity. And I think that there's a, a kind of there's a reversal there where the conversation often gets hamstrung. So maybe let's linger there for a moment and let's talk about the obstacle that's there in that distinction between looking at black dignity, African-American dignity, and all the dignity of all persons. Like where does the problem come and how can we begin to untangle that knot? Well, and if I think I understand what you're getting at here, part of the issue is, and I like how you introduced this, that those who benefit from an unjust system, and here we're talking about the reality of systemic racism and the context of white supremacy in the U.S. When I say white supremacy, that seems like a strong phrase and a lot of people get defensive. A lot of people like who look like you and I, uh, who are white folks, and, and they say, well, white supremacists, well, th that's KKK, that's neo-Nazis, that's et cetera, et cetera. And we have to make a distinction, a clarification here. White 
supremacy is merely the way of being and ordering a system, a society, uh, a way of, of seeing things and understanding the world that prioritizes and normalizes whiteness as supreme. That's literally what the expression means. So the United States was built in an unjust system with whiteness ruling as supreme. People who were identified as white being advantaged by an unjust system, people who did not enter into this category of whiteness, and that is a fluid category over many centuries. People have been admitted. It has been changed. This definition is varied. Those people are oppressed or subjugated. And so white supremacist ideology is those who espouse that white supremacy is the way that the world should be ordered. And that would be your KKK members and avowed white supremacists, we would say. So what we're getting at here is folks who benefit from these unjust systems of systemic racism and white supremacy, folks like you and I, we are given certain privileges, we are afforded certain opportunities, rights, and freedoms from oppression, freedoms from discrimination, freedoms from difficulties that our siblings of color are not afforded in the system. So when people point that out, and sometimes it's pointed out in terms of activism and movements like Black Lives Matter, sometimes it's pointed out even in the Catholic Church's own teaching, whether at the Vatican level or the papal level or even at the local bishops conference level by acknowledging the reality of racism and its sinfulness, a lot of white folks can become discomfited. And I think that discomfort, it needs to be understood, but it shouldn't be protected. And quite frankly, if I may just speak to something that's very timely, more than 30 states right now in this country have uh, state-based legislatures that are considering laws to protect this white comfort. Sometimes it's composed as anti-critical race theory laws or anti-1619 project laws or what have you to basically avoid dealing with truth, avoid dealing with reality. So when I say try to approach folks who have that kind of shoot from the hip response that, well, actually, my view when I claim when I counter Black Lives Matter with All Lives Matter, what I'm doing is actually in keeping with the Christian tradition, I would say aspirationally, we're on the same page. And I think members of the who anti-racist activists and Black Lives Matter protesters and so forth would fully be on, on board with that. The problem comes in with uh, a failure to recognize both our his history and a failure to recognize the world and our society and our church as it is today. So that's the real issue. So I think when you talk about separating the kind of mixture of these things, this kind of un untying this knot, I think that's the kind of organizing we need to do intellectually is to recognize let's not muddy an ideal or what even we would say in the Catholic tradition, what Christ calls us to in that eschatological kingdom of God future with the way we're actually living now. And frankly, if you look to scripture, that's exactly what the prophets of the Hebrew Bible do. That's what Jesus in his own life and ultimately death and resurrection does in his earthly ministry, which is to call out the difference between how God intends us to live. We might call that all lives matter and the way we're actually living, which is what this phrase Black Lives Matter is intending to draw attention to. The gap between those two things, reality and where God is calling us to live, that's what we announce. That's what we should be working toward actualizing. That's where we need to do some examination of conscience and embrace ongoing conversion. Well, and before we go to break, I just want to ask one follow-on question to this. So one thing that I recall from that uncomfortable exchange with this other board member who was also white talking about Black Lives Matter, both of us from a Catholic perspective, from very different approaches to it. One thing that I remember from that is the discomfort, like the whole notion of even naming this and even stepping into that conversation. There was a social pressure to just go along and get along and just, oh, well, this person's uncomfortable, so let's table this issue for now. And I want to talk to you just for a moment about that discomfort and help us to understand how that discomfort can be addressed or how we are called as Christians and as Catholics and as people of religious faith to step into that discomfort rather than to avoid it. Well, I think that's absolutely central. And I'm frequently asked and have since this book has come out, asked more often, why do you think so many white people deny the reality of racism? Why do you think so many white people are motivated to pass, as we've seen in recent months, these laws to, to instantiate in law this kind of white fragility, this white comfort? And and I think the, the answer I keep coming back to is fear of losing something, fear of having to relearn what one thought is true and to 
come to grips with the fact that it's not. Fear of the cost that comes with real change and justice in this world. And it's not, see, this is the problem. When we view the world and ourselves through the lens of our own comfort, from the lens of a sort of sin-based, retributive sort of mode of justice, we think, well, for 400 years in this country, white people have ruled supreme. White people have benefited from unjust systems. So if we were to rectify this, I think there are some white people who, I would call this irrational, but who are afraid, well, then does this mean then roles are reversed and then people of color then will subjugate us and oppress us? Certainly that's not the goal because that would be equally unjust and sinful. But the issue is, I think, one of the big things I would say is that white folks in this country, especially white Catholics in particular, by and large, find themselves in predominantly white white contexts. It's been said, it's a common adage since the civil rights era that the most segregated hour of the week is Sunday morning at church, right? Most white people worship with other white folks. Most white people have nearly exclusive white family members and white friends and co-workers. And so when you spend most of your life in predominantly white contexts, these sorts of conversations about the reality and the impacts of systemic racism and white supremacy don't usually happen. Frankly, the, the rare times when white people or ex predominantly white communities have these kinds of conversations is when something really terrible happens. So we saw that, of course, more widespreadly in the U.S. in 2020 after the horrific murder of Mr. George Floyd and so many other unarmed people of color where there was an un, you know, the, the pandemic had locked folks in. You couldn't escape coming to terms with and seeing that gruesome and horrendous form of modern day lynching at the hands of law enforcement officers who were sworn to protect the people they serve. And so I think that's where we saw some of that reaction was that a lot of white folks for the first time could not turn away. And the whole system of systemic racism and white supremacy in this country actually shields white folks from recognizing this unjust system. It's how it gets perpetuated in part. So I think that's part of what we're called to do is white folks need to do the homework, need to have conversations, need to come to terms with the reality of our history and of our present, and then ask ourselves, what do we need to do? What can we do? How do we move forward? If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Father Daniel P. Haran. He's a Franciscan friar and is director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College. Today, we're talking about his recent book, A White Catholic's Guide to Racism and Privilege. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Father Daniel P. Haran. He's a Franciscan friar and is director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College. We're talking today about his recent book, A White Catholic's Guide to Racism and Privilege. Well, I think that one of the things that was really helpful to me about your book, A White Catholic's Guide to Racism and Privilege, was the careful way in which you pulled apart and examined the very concept of whiteness itself. We oftentimes can think, because we've been raised in a racist society, that blackness and whiteness are some kind of essence, that they're just naturally there. And you very patiently explain, no, this is something that is socially constructed. This is something that we learn how to perform. But I think for some of my listeners, that may be language that's a little alien. So I I'm wondering if you can walk us through some of the steps. What does it mean to say whiteness is socially constructed? What does it mean to say that whiteness is learned? So, yeah, it's such an important point and something, again, that white folks don't typically think about because in a white supremacist context like our, our country here, the United States of America, 
we are raised with, we are, we are reared in, and we live and move and have our being in a system that privileges and normalizes our experience of the world. So when I say whiteness, on the one hand, I mean skin color appearance, right? Phenotype is the way technically we describe this, but it's more than that. It's a culture. It's a set of assumptions. It's a set of what the legal scholar Cheryl Harris will call property. It's something we carry with us and almost like a passport or, or a fast pass or something like this. One might have at an amusement park. You get to skip the line. You get it. Things that you don't realize are advantageous to you and that others don't benefit from. On the other hand, those who are not con uh, considered white, who are not identified as white, recognize very quickly, very readily, intuitively that there is this sense of disconnection, the sense of lack of belonging because something is awry. Their, first of all, their appearance, their skin color has a certain set of values and meanings in this context and in a racist and a white supremacist context that is, is considered less desirable than whatever is constituted as whiteness. So I think white folks, we don't think of ourselves as racialized, but we are. White is a racial category like blackness, brownness, and like those of Asian descent and so on. So what does that mean to say that it's a social construct? What that means is that there is no biological or objective or scientific measure to determine race. It is not a real category, or I shouldn't say it's not a scientific or objective category. It is a social category. It is a category that has been fluid and flexible over many centuries, and it's really tied to really the 16th century and, and the colonial enterprise of you know, the Western Hemisphere, both the encounter of indigenous peoples on North and South American continents, as well as the kidnapping and transportation and enslavement of Africans and bringing them to this quote-unquote new world. From that point onward, who got to be white or who was considered white changed over time. In the 19th century, early 19th century, my ancestors were not considered white. I'm of very Irish descent. The same thing could be said generations later of Italians or of Eastern European Jews or other immigrants. But over time, folks become let into the club, as it were, of whiteness. Why is it socially constructed? What does that mean? Well, the example I, I use in the book and that I think is helpful is to think of something other than human persons for a moment. And what does a social construction look like based on appearance? And the example I use is the eight-sided red sign we see at intersections on the street. There's nothing inherent about the color red or about an eight-sided diagram that means stop. And even the letters S-T-O-P written on such a sign that's something that we as a society have decided that symbolizes, it signals something. It means to not go. Likewise, the appearance of whiteness or the appearance of blackness has come to have meaning in our contemporary context and in our history. It's you know, Our contemporary context arises out of our historical past and reality. And so meanings have been arbitrarily or applied to things that are arbitrary, are the color of our skin. Or we can see in other forms of oppression, like sexism, for instance, one's gender identity. We can go on from there. So I think that's really important. There's nothing inherent of values or meanings that are tied to skin color or appearance. But in our society, in a racist society, meanings and values are given to those things. That's what social construction really means. Well, and in your answer, you mentioned that we assume a kind of white normativity, that we privilege and normalize whiteness. And there was a really concrete example of this that you gave in your book, A White Catholic's Guide to Racism and Privilege. You talk about a conversation that a, a priest who is a friend of yours had with a seminarian who left the seminary, and both of them were African-American. And the one of the things that the African-American seminarian said in leaving the seminary was, everywhere that I looked, whether it was the stained glass windows or the images that I was given or the, the entire assumption about what the church was, I was surrounded by a notion that it was all whiteness and that somehow I was a stranger. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but I wonder if I've got part of the story wrong, please correct me, but also if you could pick up from there and say, what does that tell us about the state of the Catholic Church in America right now? Well, it's a great example of something that seems superficial and petty to a lot of people. They'd be like, well, who cares about what color the skin is in a painting of the Holy Family or the color of a statue that's painted in a church or a stained glass window? And so, yeah, you're right to recount. That was a story of a seminary. And actually, the story was relayed by Bishop Edward Braxton, himself now a retired bishop, one of the few black bishops in the United States over the last several decades. 
And the conclusion is basically, well, the seminarian reverses it and says, what if in your average kind of suburban white parish, all of the statuary, all the stained glass windows, all of the depictions of the saints and of Jesus and the Holy Family were black? How would white people respond to that? And I think it doesn't take much imagination to realize that they would be uncomfortable. They might be upset. They might reject the idea and, and so on and so forth. And yet, Black people in particular, black Catholics have been subjected to this sense that nobody thinks twice, nobody bats an eye, no white people, I should say, those who typically are in, in positions of power and control in a church or in a diocese or in a faith community, at decorating our worship spaces with images that promote whiteness. And the irony, of course, historically speaking, is there is no way that Jesus of Nazareth and Mary and Joseph, his parents, were white. There was no Swedish holy family. This was a Middle Eastern, first century Palestinian Jewish family. If you think of somebody who lives in that context, you're thinking of somebody who does not look like they came off the boat from Ireland or from you know Norway. And yet, that's the kind of image of what the saints and of what the, the holy family and I think the exa another example the seminary uses is even the angels. And there's a painful irony theologically because angels, by definition, have no corporeal sense. They are incorporeal creatures. They're created by God, but they don't have a physical body. And yet when we create imaginary ones for them, what are they? They're little white babies or what have you. Let me take just a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Father Daniel P. Haran. He's a Franciscan friar and is director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Indiana. We're speaking today about his recent book, A White Catholic's Guide to Racism and Privilege. Another thing that you do in your book is you really unpack the documents the kind of documentary approach that the Catholic Church has taken towards the question of racism, both at a national level, you also look at it internationally, but maybe let's start with that national level. So it may surprise certain listeners to find out that the Catholic Church has, in fact, written documents that are binding on Catholics that are anti-racist documents. They are speaking out against racism. And yet these documents have, I almost want to say flaws, but let me also say blind spots. And I, I think that's probably the place to start is if you could tell us about some of these documents and some of the blind spots that they have. Yeah. So, so over the last roughly 70 years, there have been four documents from the U.S. Bishops Conference. So this is a gathering, kind of an official gathering of all the Catholic bishops in the United States. And most countries or regions of the world have such conferences or gatherings. And, and it's commonplace for these bishops who have particular authority and responsibilities in their respective dioceses. When they come together, they occasionally decide to a document that would be, as you said, binding or relevant in all of their dioceses. So it would be something addressed to all Catholics in the United States. So four times in recent decades, they've published teaching documents and texts about racism, the sinfulness of racism, the need to address that. Until this is the most recent was in 2018, and I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. But prior to that, it was 39 years earlier, 1979, that the last document on racism was published. And that text was called Brothers and Sisters to Us. And even the title itself is deeply problematic because here the document is talking about systemic racism, anti-black racism, and Notice there's us-them language in the title itself, and it elicits the question, well, who is the us and who is the them? Again, the uncritical white normativity that was so pervasive in a predominantly white institution like the U.S. Bishops' Conference that they never even thought, well, wait a minute, this might be a problem the way we're framing this. 39 years later, they published a document, and again, this is in the wake of several years after the Ferguson protests, after a murder of an unarmed black man in Ferguson, Missouri, and again, time after time, instances such as this that have come to public knowledge. And it's a very disappointing document. It's got a better title. It's called Open Wide Our Hearts. But it's disappointing, and I like the language you used of blind spots, because there are some things that are fine about it. For instance, the fact that they say, well, racism is a sin, it's an evil, it's anti-life. Okay, well, that's great. But one of the major problems, for instance, is there's no acknowledgement about who is the one who is doing the sin. There's a sociologist who wrote a book called Racism Without Racists, and this idea that 
racism is a sinful thing. It's a bad thing. It's out there in the ethos. But like no individual person's responsible, let alone complicit in what's going on. That's a major problem. There's also no acknowledgement of Black Lives Matter. There's no acknowledgement about the use of force by law enforcement disproportionately. There's no acknowledgement of the deeply embedded systemic and institutional forms of racism that exist in our laws and our societies and our communities. And another major failure is the lack of acknowledgement that the church is implicated and complicit in systemic racism in this country. As the Second Vatican Council, the Catholic Church's highest teaching office, made clear in 1965 in its document, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world is that we are not compartmentalized sort of creatures who check our social selves, our work selves, our family selves at the door of the church on Sunday, but we are always already the same in all spaces. And so the church is in the modern world. We are, if we exist in a racist context outside the door of the church, we do in as well. We bring our whole selves. So there was no sense that this was something that needed to be addressed from within the church as well. And that's a major lacuna. That's a major oversight. There was something else that you pointed out in your book, A White Catholic's Guide to Racism and Privilege. And that is oftentimes when African-American Catholics are talked about or thought about within the context of the church, the language that gets assumed in that conversation is a language that these Catholics are converts. They came from some other Christian denomination, and they decided to join the Catholic Church. There's very little sense of the history, the long history of African-American Black Catholicism within the American Church. And that's another blind spot. I wonder if you could talk both about that blind spot, but also for listeners that may be unaware, talk to us a little bit about the rich history of Black Catholicism. Yeah. I mean, that that could be a podcast of its own. And there's some really great resources out there I want to direct our listeners to. Probably the most famous and, and most influential is by the late Benedictine priest, Father uh, Cyprian Davis, a Benedictine monk who, and, and uh, American historian who wrote a book about the history of black Catholics in the U.S., more recently, a friend of mine, Professor Matthew Kressler from the College of Charleston, he wrote a book called Authentically Black and Truly Catholic. And he talks about the history of black Catholicism in the U.S. So I think one of the things that, that Father Davis makes clear is that part of the way that systemic racism operates in the American Catholic Church is this erasure or willful ignorance of the longstanding history of blacks uh, in the Catholic Church, black Catholicism. It's it's distinctive identity, but it, it's long historical presence. And so he says, as long as there have been black people yeah, in the United States, there have been black Catholics. So that's really important. The fact that people assume, as you said a moment ago, that if there are black Catholics present in a community or uh, in a, a particular parish, then somehow they must be converts suggests, again, the assumption of white normativity, that Catholicism is a quote-unquote white tradition or white religion. And now that's the historical reality that continues to our own time. I used to live in Chicago. I live in South Bend now. You live in Chicago on the South Side. We know on the South Side of Chicago that there is a robust and vibrant and dynamic historically black Catholic community, a number of parishes. But also present today, if you look at the, the 1.2, approximately 1.2 billion Catholics worldwide, the vast majority are black and brown people in the global South and elsewhere. So but the fact that people think Catholicism is a white religion, well, that's a perspective that only comes out of a white context, white North Americans, white Europeans and the rest. The problem is those are the communities, those are the populations that have historically been advantaged by systemic racism and therefore are the ones who set the tone and assume certain things about how the church is and ought to be and so forth. So I think this willful desire to forget the, the kind of diversity of Catholicism and its inclusivity is a real problem and a sign of, again, the persistence of white normativity and racism. Now, in our conversation, we've mentioned the National Association of Bishops here in America, the USCCB, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. I guess some of my listeners will probably be wondering, is there any kind of organization at the national or at the North American level that speaks to the experience of African-American Catholics and is a place where they assert their identity within Catholicism? Yeah, there is. Two two great examples for lay Catholics in particular and, and for clergy and religious. There's the Black Catholic Congress, which has been around for more than a century. It's, it's a longstanding organization that addresses exactly what you asked. 
But then within our guild as theologians, as philosophers, scholars, there's the Black Catholic Theological Symposium, which is a professional organization of Black Catholic scholars who, who do work in the areas of religion, of spirituality, of theology. And, and there are other examples as well. There's a great program that's housed at a Catholic historically Black college down in New Orleans called Xavier University. And there they have a, a program in Black Catholic studies where you can go it's run over the summer. It's a place where you can even earn a master's degree in Black Catholic studies, or you could go and take one-off courses or ongoing formation or earn a certificate. So there are many resources available. It's just a matter of coming to learn about them and uh, taking advantage of them, learning more about the tradition. It's interesting. Catholic means in the kind of colloquial sense, lowercase c, means universal. And so the fact that white folks think that the Catholic Church belongs to them alone, maybe not consciously, right, maybe not overtly, but in practice and in behavior and in thinking really is a disservice to what Catholic means in, in the small c sense. Now, when folks are going to seminary, when they're being formed for ministry, when they're being trained to be priests— are these the kinds of materials that these seminarians will be exposed to? Like when they go to get their Masters of Divinity, is it likely that they will be reading the publications of the scholars and the organizations that you've mentioned? It varies. I don't know the polity of other denominations as well as I know that in the Catholic Church, but it really varies depending on the school. It varies depending on the culture and the geographic region of the diocese. If you go to a place that's predominantly run by religious congregations that tend to be a little bit more diverse and international, it's quite likely that you're going to be reading authors like Father Brian Massengale or Professor Sean Copeland or I don't want to start listing everybody because then I'll, I'll have the people I didn't name or historians like Cyprian Davis or Shannon D. Williams and others. But sadly, I don't think this is something that is, is regularly discussed or discussed as commonplace in all of the seminaries, particularly diocesan seminaries. And how do we know this is the case? Well, you know it anecdotally. That story you shared earlier in reference to the, the story I, I include in my book from that black former seminarian. But it's also something that you see in the way that certain bishops who in a diocesan seminarian context have the power, have the control. The way that a lot of white bishops have responded to anti-racist activism, both in the church and in our communities, the Black Lives Matter movement, some have embraced very anti-black racist ideas and, and ideology. And this kind of circles back to things as simple as the opening example of the All Lives Matter retort. It can be even more complex and, and even more insidious than that. And so, no, this is an area really in need of growth in, in the Catholic Church in the U.S., but I would say more broadly as well. And one of the things I, like, I, I try to highlight in the book, in the section about church teaching, is that the United States is by no means the only nation or church in a particular nation to have to grapple with these things. We can think of our siblings in South Africa or India or in the United Kingdom, among other places, where racism manifests itself in different ways, but in ways that we can learn about as well. And frankly, I think the bishops in those countries have done a much better job, a much more prophetic and bold job at calling their own people and themselves to ongoing conversion, to reconciliation, to peacemaking and justice. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Daniel P. Haran. He's a Franciscan friar and is director of the Center for Spirituality and is professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College. Today, we're talking about his recent book, A White Catholic's Guide to Racism and Privilege. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Father Daniel P. Haran. He's a Franciscan friar and is director of the Center for Spirituality and is professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. We're speaking today about his recent book, A White Catholic's Guide to Racism and Privilege. Throughout our conversation, we've touched on this, but we haven't directly addressed it yet because we've been talking mostly about racism. But the other half of the title of your book is this notion of privilege. And I wonder if we can begin to unpack that a little bit. When we're talking about privilege, you mean this in a fairly technical way. What are we talking about? 
Yeah, it's a term that's been around for several decades now, mostly in higher education. It's a term that was popularized in the 80s by Professor Peggy McIntosh, who is a professor of gender and women's studies at uh, Wellesley College in Massachusetts. And famously, she happens upon, she's a white woman who is teaching in the area of institutional and structural sexism, both in the United States and internationally. And she shares that she has this realization one day that she has spent her career trying to get women and men to come to realize the dynamics that exist with structural sexism, that the system itself benefits men and disadvantages women and how, like helping especially men to come to see the ways that they benefit from this system. She said it occurred to her that as a white woman in the United States, she benefits from a racial privilege analogous to the way men benefit in a sexist society. And so she then writes in what has become well-known this kind of list of more than 20 phrases, instances in which she identifies ways that her being in the world, in society, at work, in stores, in her car, in her home, in her neighborhood, things that she can live with and not worry about and in and ways that she benefits from racism that her colleagues and neighbors and friends and strangers of color do not benefit from. And she names this white privilege. Now, in recent years, this term white privilege, which is a way of talking about the advantages that are afforded people who are identified as white in a systemically racist society such as ours that are not afforded to those who are not identified as white. The term privilege itself has become a hang up for a lot of communities and a lot of individuals. I myself, and I'm not alone, there are a number of other scholars too, white and scholars of color who who have been rethinking whether privilege is, is the most appropriate word. Again, this is not an effort to protect the white fragility or the white comfort of people. But privilege, I think sometimes people can think of in terms of material benefits or sort of like overt handouts or something. So it's like if you are suffering from another kind of intersecting disadvantage, so you're a white man in a rural part of this country and have come from an impoverished family or, or are unemployed and suffer from a kind of class disadvantage, you might say, well, how can you call me privileged when I can barely make ends meet, where I can't pay the rent and so forth? It's a fair question, and it's a complicated uh, question that requires a complicated answer. So when we're talking about race, the thing is, statistically, sociologically, racial advantage, racism and white privilege or the benefits that are accrued to people identified as white transcend all these other categories and forms of intersecting oppression like sex, class, and, and so forth. So we need to acknowledge that this is a reality. How do we talk about it? Well, one scholar, Shannon Sullivan, has suggested maybe white priority is a better way to describe what Peggy McIntosh was getting at. And I didn't actually write about this in my book. This is more recent scholarship, as those of us who think about these things a lot are trying to grapple with how do we explain and articulate and educate our fellow white folks about these dynamics that people of color experience on a day-in and day-out basis. And so she says, well, when you think about prioritization, that makes a little bit more sense. All things remaining equal, white people will be prioritized. We see that play out in things like the service industry. We see that played out in things like how people get loans and mortgages, how people are interviewed or treated for jobs or in housing. We could go through so many examples of this. An example I've come up with recently and I wrote about in my column in recent weeks was this image of the snowplow. Is there a way we can think of not privilege something that you get, like somebody's going to give you, oh, you're white, here's $100, but rather are there things that we're prevented from that are moved out of our way from having to deal with so that everyone's moving down the same street, but it's a lot harder and a lot more precarious for some people who are walking in two feet of snow. Meanwhile, folks who are identified as white are welcome to walk behind the plow. It's just an easier, quicker, more smooth way to get to the same place in the same direction. All of these images fall short, to be sure. But what are we really getting at here? What we're getting at is that based on one's appearance and skin color, this racialization, this racialized identity in the United States, those who are identified as white have advantages, have the privilege of not having to confront certain challenges, threats, or oppressions, and people who are not identified as white bear the burden and the oppression in that same system. So it's a two-sided coin. That's what we're getting at when we talk about privilege. That 
example of the snowplow is really helpful, and I think my listeners will benefit from hearing that. But there's another piece of this, and you've begun to touch on it with this notion of the conversation around privilege started with questions of sexism and has then been applied to racism. We could also think of ableism with regard to disabilities. And so one of the things that also comes up in your book that I think listeners may benefit from hearing you talk about is the notion of intersectionality, that when we're talking about a a racial disadvantage, it's oftentimes packaged with other disadvantages. So talk to us a little bit about intersectionality. Yeah, like Macintosh made white privilege uh, a popular term, Kimberly Crenshaw is attributed with making intersectionality a a kind of well-known term, certainly among scholars. And it's a complex theory, so I'm not going to be able to do it justice here. But in short, it's this idea that we are not reducible to one identity marker, right? We're gendered. We have sexual orientations. We are racialized. We experience class and ableism. And so there are these intersecting identities, intersecting factors, and some work to the advantage and some work to the disadvantage of any particular person. Her point primarily was that you can't just study somebody conclusively according to one categorization. We have to take a lot of this stuff into consideration when we're doing a kind of full analysis of somebody's experience. So that's important, without doubt. I think one of the things that I try to argue in this book, and I believe to be true, and I'm certainly not the first nor, God willing, the last to make this point, which is that in the context of the United States, given our history, given society as it exists now, there is something distinctive about racism as opposed to sexism or ableism or ageism or any of the other forms of advantage or disadvantage that we could talk about. And there's something deeply insidious about it. There are ways in which other forms of privilege and oppression can be avoided or one can pretend not to be disadvantaged by class, right? I don't know about you, David. I've been watching this dramatized series of the fake socialite in New York, Anna Delvey, and a story that fascinated me years ago. And it's just a bizarre story. But here's somebody who pretended to be a very wealthy German heiress, right? Clearly was not. She had no money to her name and yet was able to pretend, right, to present a certain way. What's so insidious about racism is that it's one's very appearance in the world that is used as a marker to disadvantage or advantage someone. We talk about this all the time, right? Don't we educate our children and our nieces and nephews and in schools that people come in all kinds of packages, we might say, our human presence, right? And that we don't judge somebody, that that old adage, you don't judge somebody in a book by its cover or this sort of thing. And yet that's exactly what racism is. And what makes it so insidious is one can present as straight in a homophobic context. One can present as wealthy in a classist context, etc. With racism, two things make it distinct here, absolutely distinct in the United States. One is that you can't Unless you're already presenting in such a way that people identify you in one way that works to your advantage or not, it's out of your control, right? So there's something really insidious about that. The other thing is that our economy, our history, the the only time this country so far has experienced a civil war in which hundreds of thousands of people died was rooted in racism, was rooted in white supremacy. And I believe the journalists and the scholars that support their journalistic arguments in the 1619 Project make a very compelling case that this is something that goes all the way back to prior to the founding of the United States of America almost 250 years ago. So it's that, that can't be said in the same way about sexism or other forms of oppression. Not that those aren't important, not that those aren't real. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Daniel P. Horan. He's a Franciscan friar and is director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Indiana. We're speaking today about his recent book, A White Catholic's Guide to Racism and Privilege. Well, as you come to the conclusion of your book, A White Catholic's Guide to Racism and Privilege, you open up the conversation for people like you and me. 
And for folks that haven't figured it out already, you're a white person. I'm a white person. We are coded as white in this structural system that we're talking about. But you raise the question of what does it mean to be an ally? And one of the things that you note that I found really reassuring right at the outset of your book was you're going to get it wrong and getting it wrong is not a reason to not try. So maybe let's start with that getting it wrong and how to over time become better at being allies and support in these kinds of situations of systemic racism. It's kind of like a, a bookend, right? And, and literally in this case in my book, I open by saying at one point early on that there's probably no more inflaming insult that you could level against the white person than to call them a racist, right? That tends to shut conversation down. People get very heated and animated in response. It's a very serious accusation and it's treated that way by many. Toward the end, I would say that same sort of impulse that leads to that sort of reaction motivates not just white silence, but white fear around having these conversations. I'm afraid if I say the wrong thing, I'm afraid if I don't understand these dynamics with the accuracy, for instance, that a scholar of this might present, then I'm going to be called a racist or I'm going to be I'm going to offend somebody. Right. I think generally speaking, again, this hermeneutic of generosity, I think these are well-intentioned motivations. But the problem is when you let that fear of saying the wrong thing, of maybe making a mistake, override engaging in the conversation and learning and relearning what you thought you knew, that's prioritizing your own white comfort over justice, peace, and the real life and death work that's needed in anti-racist work here. So one of the things I say is patience is central. Patience for oneself, patience with each other. Everybody approaches these topics and this reality in our community from a different place and with different histories and backgrounds and experiences. The key thing for white folks, I would say, is not to be defensive. That's probably the number one rule. You're going to feel uncomfortable, and that's okay. And you're not going to get everything right. I don't get everything right. I wrote a whole book on this. I talk about this all the time. I lead workshops. I teach courses. And I still screw up. It's inevitable. And that's I'm not saying that you do that you screw up and there's no consequence to that there's but the issue is are you open to learning and relearning are you open to being corrected one of the things i talk a bit about in the book and other folks have have talked about this in greater detail is the reality of implicit bias this is pre-conscious sort of socialization and assumptions and attitudes that we have that everybody has on some level but with regard to race white folks have in a particular way that lead to things like what scholars and activists will call microaggressions, right? That so often, and we've all been in these situations where you say something or you make a joke that was entirely innocent from your perspective as a white person and a person of color that you're talking with or or nearby takes offense at what was said. And you can't quite understand what did I say wrong. And that's the setup. What happens from that point onward? (laughs) So being a better ally means I have a lot to learn and that the privilege or the prioritization or the normativity of my whiteness blocks me from seeing the ways in which I move around the world that could offend and harm or or even risk the safety of others, particularly people of color. And so if we change your disposition to one of patience, of openness, of defenselessness, right? We're not going to get defensive. We're going to learn. Then I think that's a game changer. That's really key. And frankly, that's the hardest thing to do. That's the hardest thing I think a lot of white folks experience. I think another important thing is, and I talk about this, is getting out of the way. And it's, I realize it's bizarre coming from a, a white professor who's also a Catholic priest and an author who wrote a whole book about this on, and talking on the radio right now. But we have to be careful not to constantly recenter whiteness. Now, that's why white appears in the title of my book. It's my intention, as I say from the outset of the book, to speak to my fellow white Catholics and to white people in general. It is not my place to speak for or on behalf of anybody else. And I'm not here to tell people of color anything about their experiences. I have all but to learn from that. Those of us in predominantly white contexts most of the time don't usually have these conversations. So when we are engaging in the work of anti-racism, when we're engaging in the work of within our religious communities or in our social settings or workplaces or schools, seeking the work of anti-racism and racial justice, 
White folks, we need to step aside and learn from and listen to our siblings of color. I think that's a really important thing, too. We That goes back to Shannon Sullivan's point about white priority. We're oftentimes giving priority. We're oftentimes given platforms. We're oftentimes given deference that is undeserved and unearned. When we find ourselves in those situations, though, there's also a part of allyship that challenges us to say, how are we going to use that privilege and power, even though it's unearned and unsolicited? So it's complex, but there are steps. There are clear steps that white folks can take to be better allies in the work of racial justice. Now, when I speak to authors, the the kind of low-hanging fruit question is, who's the audience and what do you hope that the audience gets out of this? I want to ask that question to you, but in a slightly different way. So you've named who your audience is. It's other white Catholics. And I'm assuming that you've begun to get some sense of how the book is being received in the world. What would constitute success for this book? As you are seeing people engage with this book, what is it that they could be doing or communicating to each other or to you to let you know that you hit the mark that you were aiming at? That's a really great question. I I think for me, the key measure of success of this book is if a white person picks up this book or is in a book study at a parish or in a school, is this the last thing you read or the first thing you read? And for me, success would be that this is the first thing and that it is it, it launches somebody onto other resources. And it's why I spend so much time not only drawing from the wisdom of so many other scholars and experts and church leaders and activists, but especially my siblings of color who have taught me so much and continue to challenge me. That's in every page of this book. But each chapter also ends with a pretty extensive bibliography. Success for me is... I didn't really want to write this book. I'm just going to be honest with you. And I talk about this, spoiler alert, I talk about this in the introduction. I've been doing a lot of work in the the realm of anti-racist activism and teaching for the better part of the last decade, but it's been one-off. It's been in articles for magazines or newspapers. It's been in lectures or in classes. And in light of what's happened in recent years, one of my publishers approached me and said, there really isn't a resource at this time when so many people are looking for it in faith communities in particular. And I mentioned in here lots of other great resources. In many ways, this is not an original book, but it's geared to where do people begin if a faith community of predominantly white people want to start engaging in the work, right? The work of of racial justice, the work of anti-racism. That's the primary purpose. So it is It's a gateway drug, as it were, to the work of anti-racism, not an end in itself. I don't consider this book at all to be the last word on anything, but an invitation and kind of a, a primer, as it were. How to get started in thinking about these fundamental ideas. What is racism? What is whiteness? How does it function? What does the church say about these things? What does it mean to be an ally? Where do we go from here? What can I do? Those are the fundamental questions this book seeks to address. So there may be, including white folks like ourselves, there may be folks for whom this book is too rudimentary, and that's fine. But this book is really designed for folks who are looking for an entryway, who want to learn, who are open to the challenge, as I say from the outset. It's you're going to be uncomfortable if you're a white person engaging in these topics. There's no way around it. Well, Father Daniel Haran, I am grateful for what you just said, that you intended this book to be a starting point, not an ending point to a conversation. I really did receive it that way. You and I have had talks about these subjects before, and we will again on our podcast, The Francis Effect. But I'm so grateful that you took the time to write this book, and especially grateful that you took the time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thank you so much. It's my privilege. Thank you so much, David. We've been speaking today with Father Daniel P. Haran. He's a Franciscan friar and is director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. He's a columnist for National Catholic Reporter and the author of 13 books, including The Franciscan Heart of Thomas Merton and Catholicity and Emerging Personhood, which received a 2020 Excellence in Publishing Award from the Association of Catholic Publishers. Today, we've been discussing his recent book, A White Catholic's Guide, to racism and privilege. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. 
Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.